We're here every night, Monday through Friday, from 9 until 10, with a little bit of live and in real-time radio. Kind of keep keep the spirits up and keep active. And uh, we try to bring you shows that are uh, entertaining and uh, and uh, educational to tell you things that, that you need to know. And one of my favorite uh, things to talk about and that I have been a student of since I was a wee tyke is the weather. As Mrs. Kearney said to me tonight, everybody talks about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. I think she stole that from Mark Twain or somebody like that. But in any event, when I want to talk about the weather, of course, we have our friend Nick Petro, who is with the National Weather Service, who is the official voice who comes around every once in a while. But one of his predecessors in that job has retired from the National Weather Service and is a meteorologist in private industry now, private business, and his name is uh, Rod. Rod, are you there? I'm here, yes. Okay. Rod Gonski. Rod Gonski. I, 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 I looked away for a second, and I've gotten to the point of life where I have to write names down. I, I have a block <laughs> against names. I, I think it comes from taking statin medicines or something like that. But uh, and, <laughs> I, as I turned back, I said, Rod, and I said, well, he'll, he'll know what his last name is. But Rod sure. First appeal. Sure, I'm glad to be with you, Tom. Well, you first appeared on our program sometime about 1990, which is very early in his life. You and Dr. Walden are the longest-running people we have, and I, I can remember that because you and I talked about this one night. Uh, I used to do this program some on Saturday, and you were uh, came about once a month, and one Saturday you forgot to come, but I called you up, and you, 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 you were a few minutes late, but... Uh, you, yeah, it was since he got there in time, and and it, yeah, we did always, two hours always on Saturdays. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah, we. But I have, by way of paying compliment, compliment to Mr. Gonski, he, I enjoyed talking with him enough and learned enough about the weather that when he was no longer the official voice in the job of uh, that uh, of working with the weather service to, to make sure the media knew what. Uh, the messages that were coming from the Weather Service meant and that the public knew what the Weather Services uh, meant. And one of the reasons that that job existed is what we're going to start off talking about tonight. Unless I am mistaken, Rod, the Red Springs tornadoes and their aftermath inspired the creation of, I think it's warning preparedness meteorologists is what they call it now. Am I not right about that? That's correct, Tom. It's it's exactly right. uh, Maxton Red Springs tornado, of course, this is the week uh, that occurred back in 1984, March 28th of 1984. Uh, we had an outbreak of tornadoes. Uh, they call it Maxton Red Springs for that tornado, but really there was a, uh, a family of tornadoes, let's say, uh, and that consisted of about 22 co- tornadoes across the Carolinas that day. And... Uh, Unfortunately, 57 people lost their lives, 42 of those in North Carolina, uh, during that day in, in, in 1984. So uh, that outbreak uh, was still still kind of a benchmark, uh, but it was a wake-up call, too, because it had been many, many years, in fact, decades, uh, uh, since an outbreak of that magnitude uh, occurred in the Carolinas. In fact, uh, when I first came in the National Weather Service back in the, in the 70s, there was this opinion uh, amongst uh, uh, a certain segment of uh, meteorology that you couldn't get outbreaks in the east uh, uh, because you just didn't see them that much. And uh, 
uh, you know, people were somewhat complacent about that in a way, uh, not thinking that uh, that we could get a, an outbreak of tornadoes. But uh, if you look back in the history books, 100 years prior to that, uh, all the way back to 1884, February 19th of 1884, uh, a, a guy named John Finley did a, a study on on tornadoes that occurred across uh, the southeast, uh, stretching from Alabama all the way up uh, through the Carolinas to Tidewater, Virginia. And this included, uh, well, it, it included somewhere around um, 50 tornadoes and about 180 people lost their lives. But because news was so slow moving back then and um, communications were so disrupted, it took a lot of investigation work uh, uh, by that individual to, to actually plot all the damage that occurred on that day. So we know that, that these outbreaks will occur once in a while, but they, they stretch out for, for many years and sometimes decades, and people kind of forget that that can happen. Uh, but anyways, we woke up in 1984. <laughs> and, and, and the thing about it is uh, that the National Weather Service uh, kind of reorganized itself. And, it's, and, of course, the science came along, too, to start uh, – being able to decipher the structure of storms and uh, noticing that certain aspects of storms can occur not just in the Midwest or not just in the Great Plains like the classic ones, but they can occur anywhere when, you, when the conditions are right. And when you have the, the certain number of factors that come together, they can create an organized thunderstorm that will produce tornadoes uh, anywhere in the world uh, with, that, with that set of conditions. So. Uh, but 1984 was, uh, was, was, was really kind of a, a shakeup, and, uh, and what happened was that there was a, uh, a big effort made, uh, not only within the National Weather Service, but with the state emergency management people and with the media for a, a, uh, an educational um, effort to make sure people were aware of what a watch and what a warning are and, and what to expect in a tornado what it sounds like, uh, what are the pr uh, precursors of tornadoes, and uh, the, the things they can do to protect themselves uh, in a tornadic situation. I want to show off a little bit and say, going back to the Maxton Red Springs tornadoes, one of the things that I think I want to, I really want to know if I'm right about this, I'm, I'm not as sure of myself as I'd like to be, but it was that the, there was a kind of a, you pointed out that I think there were 22 or 23 tornadoes uh, in a very uh, kind of an umbrella situation, but one of them was on the ground for like 80 miles or something, which is was also thought to be unusual in the eastern United States. Does that sound right? Well, the ones that were in the 84 outbreak actually uh, had shorter paths to them uh, when they were in North Carolina. Uh, the Maxton Red Springs tornado, the one that was uh, that hit Maxton Red Springs area down in Robeson County in that area, uh, that actually started in South Carolina. I'm not sure what the total uh, mileage was on for, on that, but the uh, the 80 plus mile tornado that that did strike came in 1988, the one that hit uh, Raleigh in November of that year, and uh, stretched out all the way up to Northampton County and. Uh, and the total length of that damage path was uh, was 80 plus miles. So uh, wow. uh, certainly, well, that was a long track tornadoes, and that's that's kind of the nature of the beast. It's uh, it's a, 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 a thunderstorm that they call a supercell, 
that has a way of sustaining itself so that it can uh, produce uh, damage for uh, a very long time along a path that's miles long. Now, you and I have talked many, almost hours about that on the radio and, and not on the radio because I remember that one well, and it was, I believe, November 28th, which was, again, you, you said earlier that, that tornadoes can occur anywhere in the world and at any time. Now, there's, there's certain times like right now when they're more likely to occur, right in the spring is mm -hmm. when we usually have yep. hours and, and so on, but, but November 28th, and I just I can remember that night just like it was yesterday. It was humid hot and I got off at midnight and went out front to get in my car yep. and you could have sliced the air with a knife that night. It was so humid. That, uh, but uh, as, as I think you told me that tornado developed right over Raleigh-Durham Airport and so it was hard to detect. That's it. right. It was actually uh, uh, starting to come down right in Umstead Park, I, I believe, in the Harrison Avenue area. Yeah. And, um, and then it just... Uh, came down in full force as it got to 70 West, and that's where the Kmart was at that time that got completely flattened. Yep, and then it, it, I know uh, one of our reporters uh, had to go out and cover it, and he uh, he was at home, and he was on Creedmoor Road. He lived in some apartments, and he had to come all the way down to Glenwood Avenue, go around the Bell Line, come up to the radio station, get his equipment, go back the same way. Because he, he was at home and he, the tornado passed very close to where he was, but he didn't have his tape recorder or his microphones and stuff at home to, to cover it. And uh, he said it was kind of creepy because one of the advertising things that, that Kmart used at that time was what was called the Blue Light Special. And one of the only light he could see out there was the, light, the blue lights on the top of the, of the police right. cars. He did not well, say that, you know, however, when, in his report. The, the silver lining of, of the uh, effort that was made after 1984 was, uh, was the, the Raleigh tornado, uh, the impact that, that occurred. And by silver lining, I mean that tornado was every bit as, as strong as the Maxton Red Springs tornado. It was a, a level four, EF4. Uh, tornado, and it ripped through a highly populated area of Raleigh, um, but four, unfortunately four people lost their lives, but when you consider over a thousand homes being destroyed, four, it's amazing that only four people lost their lives, and when surveys were ta taken after the 1988 event, uh, it, it was a much different um, response than 1984. People knew that they needed to go to the lowest level of their, of their uh, domicile, that they, they had to get down as low as possible. Uh, if they had a cellar, they would go to the cellar. If they had an interior closet, they would go into an interior closet or a bathroom, put as many walls between you and the outside. Those types of, of stories were told, and, and it led, I think, to a lot of people being saved from injury or even uh, death in that situation because the destruction was really quite amazing. So uh, there's a lot of people that are really proud of the fact that, uh, that it, you know, four years' worth of, of media attention uh, allowed, you know, people to become better educated, better informed, uh, about the warnings and the watches and what these what these thunderstorms were, and and you got to remember too uh, that the technology was a lot different. It was slower to get 
the information out, and there were no Doppler radars at that time. So we didn't know the structure of the storm that was approaching you. So it was much more primitive in our abilities to be able to get that, uh, that word to you and for you to take action with any kind of confidence at all. So it was, it was really a, um, a special time and, uh, or a different time than it is right now. Uh, now, you know, if anything is close to being tornadic, you know, if you turn on the TV, uh, they, they got it up there up close and personal practically, and, and it's, it's, uh, it's not the same game. I mean, people can actually see it in, uh, in real time, whereas back then uh, there were many more missed opportunities for communicating that, uh, that word. So we were really happy that the effort back then was being made. But that did lead to the, uh, the position that uh, uh, was started in, in the Raleigh-Durham National Weather Service office, and uh, the, my predecessor was Dennis Decker, who was the first one, and then I came in uh, and, and took his place when he moved uh, down to Florida during the modernization of the National Weather Service. Can we stop for a moment there? Because we've got we've sure. plenty of time to talk about tornadoes, but we need to take a break. Rod Gonski is talking to us about tornadoes and some of the, let's say, interesting ones. That may not be a good word, but, but a little bit of, of knowledge that, that is to be gained. And we'll come back to Tornadoes right after we take this break. We're talking about the weather, and specifically about tornadoes. This is the time of year that uh, one the chances of having a tornado in this part of the world is, are, are greater. Rod, are you there? Um, one thing I wanted to uh, say, it, it is that time of year, but some years are different than other years. And one of the things that makes this year a little bit different and, and a little bit more disconcerting is the fact that there's uh, this so-called climatic condition called La Nina that is occurring out in the Pacific. Now, you may wonder, what does the Pacific have to do with us? Well, Belinda, I don't know how much time we have here, and if I can... Okay, like, okay, you've got five minutes in this segment, okay? Five minutes, okay. You know, the La Nina year, you have stronger winds blowing from the Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico east or uh, westward toward the Pacific, and the stronger winds going across the Pacific is what leads to the upwelling of colder water in the Pacific. But that, uh, that wind that comes from the Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico leads to sinking motion uh, over the southern part of the United States and into Mexico. That, that causes a high-pressure ridge. Well, what that does is that uh, when, the, when the ridge gets pumped up enough, it causes the wind velocity above the high-pressure ridge near the stratosphere to increase so that you get what we call a subtropical jet stream. Now, that in itself is not a problem, but when the polar jet stream coming down from the north meets the, the uh, subtropical jet stream, and then they two, the two of them merge and then separate, they can lead to conditions that will invigorate the thunderstorms and cause supercells to develop more readily than if you didn't have that condition. So in many a La Nina year, we have seen major outbreaks occur. One of the, the most dramatic ones to occur in the country was back in 1974, which, which, which stands as the most devastating outbreak to have ever occurred in the United States uh, in, in modern times. 
1974, it was April 3rd and 4th, there were uh, about 150 tornadoes that, that stretched from the Gulf states all the way up into the, uh, up into the Great Lakes region, the Ohio Valley and the Great Lakes region. And uh, that was a La Nina year. That was a La Nina year that occurred. And I want to remind you, too, that the last outbreak that we had in this area uh, was in 2011. And that, too, was a La Nina year. So we've seen a couple of outbreaks across the South earlier uh, in, in the past couple of weeks uh, across uh, the southern Mississippi Valley, Alabama, uh, uh, Mississippi, uh, in those areas. And that is, to, that is a classic type of signature for severe weather on a La Nina year. Uh, we see uh, there have been studies that show that there are more numerous tornadoes that occur uh, in the South uh, during a La Nina type of situation. And so this year is a little bit more disconcerting than other years, and we, we're going to have to watch uh, for any future developments of this type. Now, fortunately, this next week or so, anyways, it looks like a big high-pressure ridge is going to be dominating our weather across uh, the continental United States. And we may turn cold here, really cold, by Friday. So that will put the kibosh on any kind of thunderstorm activity. But... Uh, you know, we've got a few more weeks left uh, uh, to uh, this uh, spring tornado season. And, and really, at our latitude here, about 35 to 40 degrees uh, north latitude here across the country, uh, the peak time for torn tornadoes is the first week of May. So, uh, so we've, got a, we've got a few weeks to go by bef uh, before we can start seeing the downslope as far as uh, getting better in, about the risk of tornadoes. One of the things that I think, if I remember correctly, and, and you'll correct me if I didn't, but uh, it, it came out when they uh, did the study of the Red Springs tornadoes and so on, you know, about uh, what a warning man and what a, a watchman and so on was. Sometimes the, 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 the tornado would be described as sounding like a train and right. uh, coming. And uh, now, uh, I, I, about... It'll be two weeks ago this coming Thursday. There was one of those rounds when we we had uh, one of those lines of uh, uh, approaching from the west and the possibility of straight line winds and tornadoes and so on. And uh, and the local TV stations all zeroed in, you know, and stayed on on the the, the case and so on. Uh, right. One of the persons that had been near what well, apparently was a tornado said, "Well, I didn't hear anything like a train." So most of the people. <laughs> got the message is what I'm saying. <laughs> but, uh, in, in any event, we need to we need to be thinking okay. about pausing here, Rod. You 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 did good in lacing up a nice package for this segment. Rod Gonski, meteorologist, uh, is our guest tonight, and we're talking about uh, the 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 season of tornadoes and the some of the big tornadoes that have struck us here in North Carolina. We're going to pause right now and uh, listen to the news, and then we'll be back. Tuesday night, March 30th, uh, 2021. We made note earlier of a, a large outbreak of tornadoes in North Carolina, the so-called Red Springs Maxton, or I guess it should be Maxton Red Springs tornadoes, and, uh, in 1984. And I'm trying to think, 16, and it's about 30, uh, 45 years ago. Doesn't my math sound good to you, Rod? But in any event... Uh, <laughs> it was one of the big outbreaks. And 
was the uh, the 1974 run of tornadoes up the Ohio Valley? Is that the, the the tornadoes that are usually identified with Xenia, Ohio? Precisely, yes. That's the okay. same the same one. Yep. Yeah. And so well, it's back to you and to, back to whatever aspect of the tornadoes that you're interested in talking about. You made a point that it was uh, in about 10 years ago exactly that uh, we had a tornado approaching that approached. Uh, South Raleigh from the south uh, on uh, that was that was quite a that was quite an outbreak uh, back in 2011 uh, across North Carolina there were uh, somewhere in the order of uh, 30 tornadoes now most of those uh, were a majority of those were what they call EF ones or EF zeros uh, they were they were small scale and, and short track uh, tornadoes but there were still uh, uh, Eight, I believe, uh, level two, and then five more level three uh, tornadoes, mostly in the coastal plains, similar to the outbreak in 1984. And uh, again, it was a, as we call it, a La Nina type of year, uh, with the with the situation uh, of uh, of the Pacific Ocean in the cooler waters and in all the wind systems that uh, help uh, connect to certain parts of. Uh, of the globe, uh, you know, what we call teleconnections, actually, uh, that will uh, cause conditions that are uh, more apt to produce the type of thunderstorm that will be long-lasting and have a better chance of producing a, a tornado. Uh, in, in recent years, well, I say recent, actually the last 10 or 15 years, there have been a lot of efforts to uh, find out why tornadoes actually form. I mean, what actually helps form the the vortex of a tornado and where does it form does it form near the ground and work its way up or in the middle of the storm and works its way down and there there are still a lot of debates on that on that subject uh, in, in fact there may be a combination of, of ways that tornadoes actually begin to form their spinning rotation and uh, uh, one of the aspects uh, that's being studied uh, pretty pretty much now because the data is becoming available, is the role that lightning may have or the electrification of the thunderstorm may have on the initiation and, and uh, sustainability of a, of a vortex uh, uh, that, that will eventually become a tornado on the ground. And um, there, are, there are a lot of theories right now that there's more to a tornado than just hot and cold you know, colliding that there actually may be electronic or electrical forces, uh, positive and negative, that lead to a sort of a dynamo type of an effect uh, that, that maintain the rotation uh, and a violent rotation of, of a tornado. So uh, there's actually been devices that have been constructed to help detect that pattern of uh, electricity that, that may occur with a tornado. And uh, I don't get any kind of... Uh, Benefit or any kind of kickback or anything, but one of those, one of those uh, devices uh, actually was started uh, uh, within the confines of the company that I'm doing work with right now. But it's, it's sold on Amazon and it's called the Tornado Alert Device. That's a, it's just a simple name, Tornado Alert Device, and you can actually get it on Amazon. And uh, it's uh, on, on the on the it's like a little uh, pocket radio almost, the size of it. And uh, what it does is it's got a built-in algorithm in it that, that, uh, that continually scans the area and, and tries to look for that electrical pattern 
that uh, that is associated with a tornado. So this is not radar. This is not um, you know some you know radio beams or anything like that. This is actually just trying to detect the electrical signal that uh, that is contained in a, in a tornadic thunderstorm. And I've got one of them, and I know other people that have them, but it's a it's an extra measure that people may want to look into uh, as another means of, uh, of warning themselves that, uh, that a thunderstorm may indeed be tornadic. Uh, radars are great now because they're Doppler radars, but a lot of times there's false alarms that occur because of, of uh, wind systems that look tornadic but actually don't produce a vortex on the ground. The, uh, the tornado alert device, uh, that uh, picks up the lightning and the electrical signal has a better uh, has a better running record as far as being able to decipher which tornadic looking thunderstorms actually have a tornado on the ground. So I just want to make people aware that that there are devices that are being developed, and uh, you may hear about those more and more as we go along, uh, and, and people begin to, to understand a little bit more about the electrification of. Uh, of these tornadoes than they've ever done before. And of course, we have satellites now that, that are able to detect the uh, total lightning, uh, not just the cloud of the ground strikes, but the total lightning that uh, are contained in the, uh, in the thunderstorm systems that we see. That uh, is interesting. Are they, are they saying, I'm kind of curious because I've, I've always been a little bit curious about uh, electrical fields and, and, and electrical waves, and of course, some of that's involved in, in radio and so on. And uh, but right. uh, uh, is the, the thought that a, a field is creating the tornado, or that the tornado is creating the field, or or, or what? What do you know about well, that? Well, there is a separation of charge in a thunderstorm, positive and negative. Okay. And um, I would have to actually go through the study once again to to be able to. Uh, to tell you exactly, but the charges inside and around the edges of the tornado are different. You know, one's positive and one's negative. And so when you when you get opposing charges like that, just like in an electrical motor uh, where you have AC current, you're going to have sort of a dynamo type of an effect, and that's what they're talking about here. Well, that's exactly the image I had in my mind is that it's sort of the... They, Positive and negative, you know, and you or end up uh, by switching back and forth, generate electricity, for instance, or, or right, and, and, or, and that will that that will put out an electrical that will send out an electrical type of signal, the pattern of which can be recognized by a device that has that algorithm built into it to look for that wave formation within the electrical field and uh, and be able to say, yeah, that's that one, you know, that has that signal, you know. So that's what it's all about. It's really amazing and interesting to me. I'm, uh, I'm ever the historian. I can remember reading an article when I was a kid, maybe in high school, in the Reader's Digest, and uh, some guy in Wichita Falls, Texas, had uh, stood there in his house as the tornado approached, and just as it hit his house, he'd taken in a 35-millimeter camera, and he'd taken some pictures. And those were the best pictures they had of... Right. tornadoes at that point and now we've got right. all the tornado chasers out there and everybody's got a, a, a smartphone and, and taking pictures as the house falls on them you, you see what i mean it's, <laughs> we've got a million pictures now where we had one then and radar like i say like i said at the beginning you know we're, we're in a brand new world compared we to what we were in the 1980s 
I mean, you know, uh, it, really we were kind of blind back then. It's amazing that we were able to do as good as we did in the uh, in, back in the 80s before all this technology. Now you have uh, everybody with their cell phones, and, and uh, you have 24-hour news cycles, so, uh, anxious to get any kind of content at all. Uh, to be able to, to broadcast, and uh, and so it's it's hard to get away from it. Right, <laughs> <You know? laughs> Tom. There's something going on in the world all the time, and 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 it's not like it's just started. It's just that it's always been going on, but we never heard about it before. But now we do. Well, I've listened to the guy telling there on the TV talking about it. We're, we can see the raindrops going this way, and then we can see the raindrops coming this way, and that apparently has something to do with that that thing that they call a hook that they think may be a tornado, but of course what they what they and you, you folks are still looking for is the man on the ground who's actually seen the tornado. And, uh, uh, right, because uh, not every hook will put a, a tornado on the ground. So, so often you get uh, the hook-type pattern that you're describing, and the tornado, will there will be a vortex, but it will be up in the cloud or it won't touch the ground. And so that leads to a lot of false alarms, which we don't really want to have you know, people being false alarmed with a lot of tornado warnings and not have anything occur. Uh, that's like crying wolf, you know. It's just, uh, you know, that's a bad that's a bad situation. So although hook echoes have, have long been known to be associated with tornadic storms, it's only a few of those hook echoes that actually produce destructive tornadoes on the ground. I guess we can only tell, tell as much as we can tell about them since we've had Doppler radar, which detects a lot more than traditional radar did in terms of motion of, of particles. Sure. I mean, the, the, the conventional radar that I started in, in the National Weather Service was, was simply what we call reflectivity. You bounce the radio beam off the raindrops or off the hail particles in the storm. They flash back to you, but you have no way of knowing in which direction they're moving uh, except with the entire system moving, but you could not see motions within the storm. All you saw was a big blob on your scope. And it was there were no map backgrounds or anything on this on this scope. You had to transfer that data to a, a map somewhere. Hopefully, somebody was helping you, and you actually would plot out where these storms would be. It's just an amazing situation. You know, uh, Tom, it, it, that kind of reminds me. If anybody's really interested in knowing about the history of of warnings and watches and that sort of things in the last 50 years, there, there is a good book out by uh, an author named Mike Smith. He's actually a meteorologist from uh, Kansas, uh, the Kansas-Oklahoma region, and uh, and actually he worked for AccuWeather for a little bit too. Uh, but he wrote a book simply called Warnings, and and it documents really well uh, from about the late 50s on uh, how these warnings and watches have have evolved, and that and and how they've come together with events during those decades and and the technology as it improved. So it's. It's a good read, and it's simply called "Warnings: The True Story of How Science Tamed Weather." And uh, I would I would uh, recommend that book if you have an interest in in the history of, of uh, the evolution of warnings and watches across the United States. I always love bibliography. That's Rod Gonski, a meteorologist uh, and a longtime visitor to our radio program, and talking about tornadoes because we are in the the time of year that we're most, most likely to have a tornado, and I think he said earlier that sort of the peak of the season, 
we have a peak of the season for, for hurricanes, but the peak of the season for tornadoes is around the 1st of May. Rod, we're going to take a break now, and when we come back, we'll probably have about six minutes left, so you can see what you can think of to fill in that particular wedge of time right after this on WPTF. Mark of the show that we usually do is to tell you what's going to be on. Uh, tomorrow night, uh, Stephen Kearney's going to be here, and we're going to talk about baseball movies, things like Bull Durham and Field of Dreams and Pride of the Yankees and, and Bang the Drum Slowly. So you, we hope you'll join us for that. Uh, Thursday night, uh, Pam Beck is going to talk about the flowers and uh, vegetation and things and, that are associated with Easter and, the, and symbolism of uh, of the Easter season, and Friday night will be, of course, trivia night. Ron Gonski is our guest tonight. He's a meteorologist, and we are in the midst of what is typically the period when we're most likely, uh, although you could have a tornado anytime, to tornadoes appearance, and the anniversary of the Red Springs tornadoes, and uh, so on. So Rod has been informing us about that tonight. And Rod, you've got about uh, about five five minutes left, and uh, where do you do you have a place that you want to go from here? Well, I wanted to emphasize again that you know, and a lot of our part of our program has been in uh, you know the evolution of the warnings and, and watches, and uh, you know, instructing people on what to do in a tornadic situation. And and although these these events that have occurred in the Carolinas have been destructive, we have learned something from them, and 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 we're making strides to improve those warnings and watches. And, and i like to point out that, you know, back three days ago, there were something like 25 tornadoes that occurred uh, in, in the south, uh, Tennessee and the Alabama area. And then two days before that, there were 45 more tornadoes that occurred. And uh, the number of fatalities and injuries have been very, very few. And it appears that People are getting the message. It appears that the media is doing a great job in, in uh, helping uh, inform the people, and the people are, are, are knowing what to do uh, in those events. Because there's been, a, you know, you, you listen to the news or watch the news, and there is a lot of destruction. A lot of, you know, homes have been destroyed, and yet people got into safe positions to, to protect themselves and their families. And so I think, I think there's a success story there with regard to the warnings and watch program that we've had and over the over the you know decades that I've been involved in, in, in you know weather forecasting and, and, and weather warnings uh, we've seen this improvement uh, and, and I, again I wanted to, to mention that there are books like uh, the warnings book by Mike Smith uh, for people that might want to uh, read more about how that whole process evolved there are other books, too, that I just wanted to mention real briefly. One's called The Tornado by Tom Grazulius. I'm sorry. <laughs> but it's called The Tornado, which is a very interesting book because it, it too, looks at the, the history of, the, of, of our understanding of tornadoes since about uh, the early 1950s. And, and uh, I, like to, I like to read this book and... and, uh, and um, it, it always comes to my mind because it was. It starts with a, a tornado that actually occurred in Massachusetts uh, back in 1953, and uh, my father, when I was young, I, I had just been born, and uh, he told me it's the blackest cloud that he ever saw. You know, and it was. He described what later on we could tell was going to be 
called a supercell thunderstorm, and, and it uh, caused a, uh, a great deal of damage in Worcester, Massachusetts, and killed over 100 people. So these books tell the story of, of the, uh, you know, our understanding of, of tornadoes and how we've adapted to form warnings and watches to help people and how the media has helped uh, in that effort as well. So, um, so it's a, it's a, you know, these, these kind of anniversaries that we see, like the Maxton Red Springs, kind of remind us of, of where we've been and, and, and how far we've come since then. You know, one of the things that I was thinking about, I was thinking, you know, Tom, what kind of contribution to you make, can you make to what Rod is saying? Because you've covered an awful lot of good information tonight. But one of the things that I think is is interesting is that I, I, when I started working for WPTF almost 40 years ago, putting a warning or a watch on the air was a kind of like doing something manually. You know, you right. the, re- right. the weather station called the radio station and say, I'd like to broadcast a warning, and I had to notify our FM station, which would relay it, you know, and so on and so on. And now it's all automated, and it's automated in such a way uh, that it appears on radio, it appears on television, and they've even got it where it appears on the cable channels, now, which they didn't have at first. So that if you were right. watching a cable channel, you wouldn't get it. And and it's, it's all there, and it's actually fixed so that uh, it's, it goes straight through. I know in our, in our chain... Uh, John, who's our producer, if John went to sleep and he wouldn't, which of course he wouldn't, I shouldn't use that example, but it, it's automated is what my point is. It's going to go out right. anyway, whatever he does, whatever I do, whatever you do, and and, and that that's that, that wakes people up when they hear those sounds, and, uh, and uh, to be okay, here, listen to this, something's about to happen. That's right. That's right, Tom. Uh, and, and, and the process you, you described about how difficult it was to actually get it on the air, it was equally as hard to get it to that point where we were actually transmitting it in our office because we were in a darkened room with a black and white little scope uh, of a radar and then somebody else with a map trying to plot where the storm was going and how far it was going to be and then triangulate everything with, a, with a, actually a coloring pencil uh, it was difficult to make the decision to get it out there before the storm has already passed, you know, and, and so uh, it's a whole new ball game right now, and, uh, okay. and we're seeing a lot of the fruits of that now. And we need to go. You, you made a nice state package. Rod, I may call you on the phone here, off the air in a moment, but thank you for being with us tonight and giving us all this good information. My pleasure, Tom. Our meteorologist, and uh, we'll be back tomorrow night to talk about baseball movies.